Today's program is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin wins more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. Hey, thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. This is Katie, HRN Executive Director, and I'm so excited to share with you our coverage from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. We are here live today at Charleston Wine and Food. Join us as we talk all things food. Come to Charleston, eat some seafood. Eat all of the seafood. Chicken fried chicken with chorizo steak and salsa verde mashed potatoes. So quintessentially like Southern fare at its finest. And have important conversations. We're also talking about professional women in restaurants and how underrepresented they are. People of color in restaurants and how they're not talked about. We get real with Food Network's Manit Chohan. Balance is BS. Uh, I, I, I was, yeah, I was told that uh, I wasn't going to be bleeped out. And find out about raising sugarcane with Chef Sean Brock. It's like being Indiana Jones or something. You never know what you're going to find. You'll come away inspired by the power of food and the food scene in Charleston. Here's Dr. Jessica B. Harris. Food is constantly in flux. Food is always moving. Food is the only real lingua franca that we have that allows us to connect with other folks. So tune in to Heritage Radio Network on tour at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You can't go wrong. All right, good evening and welcome to... About it. On Heritage Radio Network, we're here at the well in East Williamsburg, Bushwick, Brooklyn, and uh, with a kick-ass panel of brewers from New York City and upstate. So I'm going to introduce, I guess I'll introduce myself. My name is Mary Izette, and I am a co-host of Femen About It on Heritage Radio Network. Um, full disclaimer, I'm also married to Chris Kuzme and part of Fifth Hammer Brewing Company. Um, and I will have you guys introduce yourself. So let's start on the end with Jesse. Thank you, Mary, for having us. And I'm really happy to be here at the well for the panel two years in a row. I'm Jesse Ferguson. I'm from Innerborough Spirits and Ales, which is like a few blocks that way. And uh, I'm the brewer and distiller and founder. And my partner, Laura, is here somewhere as well. And Jay right there. Welcome all, I'm Daniel Acosta, LIC Beer Project. Thank you for having me and look forward to it. Cheers. Hey, I'm Sam from Other Half. Uh, I'm brewmaster and co-founder of the company. My name is Chris Kuzumi. I'm a saxophone player. I'm madly in love with the moderator. And uh, I'm founder and brewer at Fifth Hammer Brewing Company in Long Island City. Happy to be in the neighborhood with Dan Acosta of LIC Beer Project. Uh, Jason Sinan, Hudson Valley Brewery in Beacon. I'm drinking a, uh, a German lager beer, which I'm told by a uh, bona fide German that it's pronounced Scherlenkerle. <laughs> I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, though. That's it. Okay. So kind of the theme of the panel is um, today, we have, we have a, it's a, it's a wide a wide theme. But basically, where is the conversation going? Um, craft beer 
in this country and especially in the city and the region has come a long way. In the last few years, we've, I don't know, quadrupled um, the number of breweries. New York State, I think, is number four or number five um, in number of breweries per state. And I think we're third or fourth in economic impact now, um, largely in part because of very friendly legislation in this um, state, but for a lot of other reasons as well. So let's talk about kind of how that's changing the game. Um, I think the first thing is, um, let's just talk about new areas of awareness that are going to dominate the discussion. So let's just start with cans. Um, somebody asked, so canning, canning, um, everybody's crazy for cans, which I think is an awesome thing. They're a, a wonderful vessel um, for the environment and the economy and um, it's way easier to tote a six pack of cans up four flights of stairs in New York City than bottles. Um, but canning is actually pretty difficult. There's a lot more to it than most people imagine. So one big topic right now among brewers is dissolved oxygen. So who wants to talk about dissolved oxygen? Who has concerns about dissolved oxygen in, in our panel today? <laughs> I worry about dissolved oxygen <laughs> nightly. <laughs> So let's talk about what is dissolved oxygen, why do you worry about, about it, and what, what are you guys doing about it? Well, oxygen is really bad for beer because it oxidizes the beer and it makes it taste bad. It makes it look bad, it makes it taste bad, it makes it smell bad. So oxygen is pretty much the enemy of beer for anybody who likes beer in any format. Cans are considered to be better for, oxi or for keeping oxygen out because the, the seam on the top is technically tighter than the seam on a crown and a bottle of beer. Um, but that doesn't matter if what you're putting in the can is full of oxygen once you put it in the can. So I think as brewers or as a brewer myself, my number one uh, goal is just to make sure I'm allowing as little oxygen into the beer prior to packaging because the packaging process, whether you're putting it in cans, bottles, kegs, bo you know, anything, is always going to be one of the primary sources of oxygen ingress or pickup. So, but, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think everybody pretty much worries about that. I don't think you're going to find a single person up here that doesn't have that as a concern. So... Uh, I'm not sure where we're going to go with that, but I, I, I do think, though, that it's at our size, everybody here has, is working with uh, less, um, less advanced canning technology, which means we all spend a lot of time trying to keep oxygen out of the process during actual packaging. And I think that's, that's everybody's main area of concern. So a few of you guys have purchased your own canning lines. How has that changed? your business and your brewery? It's cheaper. Uh, I mean, most of, us, most of us have started out using Ironheart or some other similar canning company. <clears throat> so they come in and set up in your brewery and can the beer for you and you pay them for that service. So obviously having your own line over time is cheaper once you've purchased it. But as far as uh, quality, it doesn't really change anything because we're all using the same lines. The step up from what we're using to a, to a rotary filler that is counter pressure filled is, you know, it's a million dollars. So when you're looking at a brewery that's, you know, producing under 10,000 barrels a year, it's, it's really difficult to make that jump. So again, that's why we all spend so much time worrying about it is that we're, we're working with, a, a, I mean, it's a great machine for what it is. It's, a, it's small, um, compact, 
people can fit it in their small breweries, but which is you know really important in New York City. But it's it's fallible, and we all have to be really diligent about it. So we, we all spend a lot of time with that. I think that um, is weird because the the popular opinion of cans, right, is that they're the most stable vessel to package in, right, from the perspective of the consumer. And I think that was probably true when sort of nationally distributing like large commercial brewing companies were dominating. Um, like sort of the can as a packaging vessel market. Um, probably now that's not the case. There's a lot of small breweries who are using uh, mobile canning companies like Ironheart uh, to package their beer. And I, I think Ironheart does a great job, but you're sort of putting the um, responsibility, right, in someone else's hands to a certain extent and um, to trusting that they're going to fill the cans in a way that is treating the liquid with like as much respect as, as you put into making it. And I think that they do. Um, but yeah, certainly I think dissolved oxygen is an issue um, with, with like smaller breweries that are doing, especially when most of the people who are buying those cans are then shipping them warm um, across the country and like, uh, warmer temperatures make the dissolved oxygen more of an issue. If you were to keep that can cold, it, it wouldn't be that big of a problem, but like sitting warm in someone's suitcase or in a box and being shipped all over the country is going to um, have like a negative effect on, on the quality of the beer. And then like, I'm sure for all of us, like I wake up at night with nightmares of like someone on like untapping like a brown liquid, right? Like. Like, I didn't know IPA was supposed to be brown. It's like, it's not. I, I, think, I think you should. So just to clarify on this, since not, I'm sure not everybody is aware of what, what oxidation does to beer, but the reason he's referring to brown IPA is that oxidation does cause color change, so you'll see a darker beer. So, I, I mean, I think we've all seen this before at some point, is a can of the same batch of beer, and one can is slightly darker than the other, and you see people take pictures of it, and that's that moment where we're all like, um, it also tends to give it a, a cardboard character or it also can enhance kind of the malt character depending on the timing where you, where you are in the oxidation process. So it's, that's, that's why it's an enemy is it makes the beer taste less good. We should just start making brown IPA and then it solves a lot of problems. Yeah. Bring it back. Someone, someone told us, I think it was actually a guy from Ironheart, was like, oh, yeah, uh, fruit and botanicals and stuff have, it, like, anti-oxidative qualities. Um, from that day on, we've put fruit and botanicals in every soup. <laughs> it's a sour IPA. Yeah. In, in the battle of dissolved oxygen, I would say that in the past five to seven years, you, um, what we've seen is as canning equipment has become more and more accessible to brewers, um, you know, in the Northeast and across the country, I've also seen a lot more breweries and the mobile canning companies with dissolved oxygen meters. And, that, and so that we were able to quantify how much oxygen is in the beer prior to packaging and post-packaging. Um, I mean, for the tool to be completely useful for a brewer, you need to be quantifying the amount of oxygen throughout, you know, post-fermentation. That's the point. I mean, prior, I guess... The, we add a ton of oxygen right before fermentation, obviously. Like, we, the yeast needs oxygen, right? But the idea is that we're then removing as much of the oxygen as possible, or all the oxygen the yeast are. Um, 
But so it's, you know, the canning technology became very accessible to small breweries through the mobile canning revolution. And then with that has come, you know, lower and lower price DO meters and companies that build DO meters leasing or loaning DO meters to, to, to breweries. So we're able to quantify and put our fingers on the numbers. Um, but in the long run, all that really matters is that if it gets in there, it's not good beer. So. Yeah, I think I could build a little bit on what Jesse was saying about um, monitoring dissolved oxygen levels because we, we happen to stress a lot on actually packaging the beer, but we found if we work, you know, we reverse work through the process that we're picking up a lot of deal levels prior to packaging. So I think a lot of those processes as far as how we introduce hops into the beer when we're dry hopping, how we transfer our beers um, from primary fermentation to secondary over to the bright tanks, let them condition, carbonate. I think um, that we find that there's a lot of holes in those processes as well with breweries that sometimes maybe they don't have the proper equipment to monitor or maybe it's something that they just don't um, feel is super important because the emphasis is on the final packaging of the beer. But prior to getting to that point, there's a lot of processes where we're introducing the oxygen uh, and how we're handling the product before it actually gets into the vessel, which which from where we, where we sell it or distribute it. So I think it's um, monitoring those, those, those steps in, in the production uh, cycle is super important to, to the overall conditioning of the beer in the vessel. And to also to oxidation, it's even worse when we're pouring straight from our taps and filling growlers and crawlers. So it's up to you guys to drink swiftly and fast. Don't, don't sit on crawlers or growlers for a very long time, or cans for that matter, but especially with those, there's a lot of user error. Yeah, we've, we've found with a lot of different uh, hopping techniques on our beers, uh, we've had varied um, levels of dissolved oxygen in the beer pr um, prior to dry hopping and after dry hopping, after monitoring those levels. So little techniques like that, I think, are super important. You know. We dry hop our beers at certain degrees uh, terminal gravity, and we found some variations in dissolved oxygen there. So I think monitoring those, those processes prior to packaging are extremely important, especially for hobby beers. So let's take a brief break and talk about the beer that you guys just poured for yourselves. So this is from you, Dan. Tell us about this. Uh, this is just a cool, exciting, exciting beer that we brew uh, occasionally. It's called Wild Style. Uh, it's brewed with Citra, Galaxy, a few of the hops in there. Uh, it's got a big wheat base, about 25% uh, wheat in the beer, which is a big 9.5% beer. This, this beer attenuated a little bit more in the last batch, so it's a little drier, uh, a little more alcohol in the beer. Yeah, it's just a crazy little beer that we experiment with on every batch, and I think a lot of those processes we really try to dial in from, from different variations of the beer. This beer, we tried some different dry hop techniques, um, some different techniques on, the, uh, on our mash during our other on the hot side in the brew house. Um, to try to really build some on some of that protein, some of that mouthfeel in the beer, uh, adjusting different uh, water chemistry in the beer, and just looking for the um, overall impression of the beer to have be really full to carry a lot of alcohol in those hops. So we just keep experimenting. It's kind of just a crazy project. Our hoppy beers. So we have a question from the audience. Josh asks, what about the possibility or advantages of 12-ounce cans? And I will add, what about 8-ounce cans? Since yeah. two of our brewers have canned in 8-ounce cans this year. 
Well, how this how this sixteen ounce t- tall boy become such a big deal? Dude, it's it's weird. I, I feel like the consumer does not respond to twelve ounce cans in this, with the same fervor that they do of sixteen ounce cans. I don't know what it is, but it's just the case. I, I'll say my favorite size is actually the four forty, which is something that they have in Europe. <laughs> because it's kind of that in between. I, I get it. The twelve the twelve seems when you look at it, the diminutive. Exactly. <laughs> And and it doesn't it doesn't Industrial. display it doesn't display the artwork that you're putting on the can as well. So there, I think that goes into the you know the 16 ounce is a is a bigger canvas. It looks beyond that. I mean, I don't know. I I, I just I mean I'm not. I have a hard time drinking a 10 ounce. I mean a 10 percent beer that's 16 ounces. And I and I uh, you know, but that's just where we're at with the packaging. I would love to do 440s, but that's a a European standard size, which is, it's like 14 ounces or something, which is, I mean, to me, that's like, that's perfect, yeah. especially for those eight and a half, 10% beers. And for those 10% beers, that's where kind of Jesse and I love the eight ounce cans for. I mean, you can drink them yourself and it used to be the standard or it kind of still is a standard in a lot of circles. And it is really nice to have a really large 750 bottle that you take to share with friends. But sometimes you want to drink a 10.5% beer to yourself, but you just don't want 750 milliliters of it. And, or maybe you do. <laughs> but I, I would say ultimately though, that the 16 ounce can, I think that we've arrived at that because of the consumer wants it. I mean, you have to listen to what people are asking for, and nobody's ever been, nobody's ever told me they wanted a 12 ounce can of anything. So think, ultimately, that's, that's what got us there, I think. Today's program was brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. What do you think of when you hear Wisconsin Cheese? For me, I think cheese curds. Delicious, fresh and squeaky cheese curds. Or deep fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally anyway, anytime, anyplace. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese, the farmstead cheese company behind Pleasant Ridge Reserve. I think of delicious, stinky Limburger and its long storied history. I think of Dunbarton Blue, made by master cheesemaker Chris Raleigh. I think of Ross Grand Cru Sirchois, which was named 2016's World Championship Cheese, and Satari's Black Pepper Bella Vitano, the 2017 U.S. Championship Cheese. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese with lush grasslands and a glacial water supply that produce the very best milk. Fourth-generation cheesemakers combine old-world tradition with new ideas and the highest standards to make innovative cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. Can size, I think, is um, it's sort of a function of what is most common because a lot, like I think Jason alluded to earlier, a lot of people are are exchanging cans, and so if every if, if you put your double IPA or Imperial IPA into a 12 ounce can, and you want that guy's Imperial IPA that's in a 16 ounce can, then it's not a one for one trade. So you know, and there's a, there's a, a large part of what we're all doing, which is that the consumer's driving 
on a lot of levels, like what they're going to buy and what they're going and what they're going to you know go after. And having the 16 ounce can as a standard, um, it's just like having NPT is how the pipes fit together, right? Like you try and put your double IPA into a 12 ounce format, and then people say, well, that doesn't fit with what my you know does not compute. I think that um, you know. 12 ounce cans of Pilsner, 12 ounce cans of double IPA, 12 ounce, they, they all taste just as good. It's just a sort of a question of like what people want and what they're gonna, and what works for them and how they're using the beer essentially. So yeah, it's, it's a, oh, I'm sorry, go, go ahead. I was just gonna make a joke. <laughs> I, like, I like how Jesse casually threw out MPT as every reason to be like, oh yeah. Well, I don't know, whatever standard metric <laughs> versus. In, I know a lot I, about pipe threading. Yeah. I think it's just, you know, it's consumer driven, really, you know? If people want to drink beer in 16-ounce cans, we put beer in 16-ounce cans. I, th I think it's, it's as simple as that, you know? And we use it to our advantage as far as some of the branding is concerned. You know, some of our beers, we do a full graphic artwork, so it allows us a larger canvas, so just to spread a little bit with... Like this really awesome can <laughs> label? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah if, if people want to drink 16-ounce cans, that's what we should put the beer in. So Jesse, will you repeat your eight ounce can? I've got a half a pallet of eight ounce cans. Um, <laughs> the, one of the issues is the price point, right? Like if I'm using a mobile canner that's a and- mixed, That's a mixed drink, right? That's like a- No, I mean, I've got a mixed, a I've got a half a pallet. No, it's, <laughs> it's, no. it's a No, so too, no, right? something that nobody in here knows is that the TTB does not regulate package size. The TTB, the Tobacco and Trade Bureau, does not regulate the the package size for beer in any way. If you're a beer maker, you can put your beer in any size package you want. The spirit side, on the other hand, which we have a distillery and we've been trying right. to put, you know, gin and tonics and other mixed drinks into cans, we're only allowed certain sizes. The way I landed on the eight ounce can was because I thought that would be the perfect package size for a 10% gin and tonic. Then I submitted it to the TTB and they said, oh no, you can't put a spirit in <laughs> you know, 12 eight-ounce cans. But then I'd already figured out the eight-ounce cans were out there and that Ironheart could can them. And I thought, well, that'd be sweet for barrel-aged stouts because that's all <laughs> I want to drink of barrel-aged stouts. So I bought them anyway. And then, yeah, the problem is that with mobile packaging costs, I'm going to own... It's everything about that can, which is half the size of this one, costs me the same except uh, the, the amount of liquid inside yeah. it, right? So... Um, I would love to put a Pilsner in an eight ounce and say, all right, I'm going to have ponies of Pilsner for you guys this summer, except that it would have to be, you know, $16 in order to cover all my costs. And nobody's going to buy eight ounce cans of Pilsner for $16. So now I'm going to wait till next fall and do another barrel aged stout in my eight ounce cans and, you know, and make it so it works out for me financially and economically. Tipo pills. People drink Tipo pills in eight ounce cans, I think. Yeah. Just that case, you're saying? No, I'm saying <laughs> Tipo Pills, the Burrifico Italiano. I feel like people would buy eight-ounce cans of that, right? They're, they're pretty Instagram. Clario, what do you think? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about um, how, do, how do these uh, proposed aluminum tariffs strike all of us? Oh, shit. <laughs> I didn't think about it's that. It's the first time I've ever said President Trump. <laughs> Anybody yeah, this kind of thing's not really yet. working out. <laughs> we don't know yet. Uh, we don't know. know. Everybody, we don't know. We have no idea. So the tariffs are, they come down on, on aluminum. 
uh, an import, imported aluminum, but I think 98% of the, the can and lid makers are, are US made anyway, right? So, but in order to offset the other things that they're making with these, uh, it, might, it might affect the industry, but we just don't know to what extent. There might be a 10% increase. I think we got an, an email from Ironheart recently about that stuff, but, uh, yeah, but it's too soon to say. The, the raw materials that go into the can, even though the cans are produced in the U.S., the raw materials that go into the cans are still, in, are, are still imported. So the, the, the cost of the raw aluminum or whatever, I forget the word for how, what the actual compound is, but that's going to go up. And so we're going to pass it on to you. <laughs> <laughs> so we have another question from the audience, uh, from Alex. For can releases, what benefits do the breweries have for not pre-releasing case counts? And if you do, what benefits are there to the brewery? Oh, uh, Go, oh, Sam. Yeah, <laughs> this, this, is, this is a big one for us. People are always uh, asking us this. And for the most part, the reason we don't release case counts is uh, it's, we end up in these scenarios where beer gets sold to friends or family and then we have less than we said and, and then also we also just it's not really everybody's business um, you know we're, we're uh, we try to be as give people as much information as we can about what we have and and we try to let people know when we're going to run out but as far as like our the day-to-day back end of what we're doing I don't think that's something we have to share um, and I know it's it's frustrating for some people that like to track that kind of stuff. And there's some like really intense spreadsheets out there in the world of people tracking beer releases and they, and they predict when you're going to run out and all these things. And I, I get it, but for us, we like to keep some things to our, to ourselves here. Got to keep the mystery alive, right? I, I feel like the more we because you want to provide as much information as possible in order to make like the consumer experience like streamlined and comfortable and all of that right i think that anxiety is one of the sort of um like major feelings that most people who are standing online have like especially if they're toward the back they don't know if they're going to get beer or not um and so providing as as much information as possible i feel like it, it's important but at the same time the more information you provide, the more opportunities you give um, the uh, sort of nitpicky consumer. People use it against you. Yeah. So, which is weird. It's a dilemma that I don't think that we've completely figured out yet. I mean, we've only been doing can releases for like six months now, and we're trying, like, deliberate practice. How do we get better at doing this? Um, and I'm starting to realize that the more information you provide, it gets to the point where it's like the the data threshold undermines your ability to provide like a pleasurable experience for people who are coming to the event. I don't know. Yeah, I, sorry. I, here's the thing. I think a lot of people think that we're like maliciously trying to keep people from getting cans, which is not the case. We'd like everybody that ever comes to the other half to walk out with cans. And we've actually, over time, we've developed, we, we know what works for us. I think that if you come and wait in line at other half, you are going to get cans at this point. Like it's very, very, very rare. It's a very rare release where that doesn't happen. You may walk up two hours later and not get cans, but people in line almost always get cans, and that's because we've kind of figured out how the system works for us to make sure that happens. We definitely want everybody to walk away with cans, 
And I know, you know, people discuss case limits. That's another, that's another big discussion all the time. And people, people get really upset at us for not, for having higher case limits. But the fact is, is that most people don't buy the full limit. They, they almost never do. But it allows people that are traveling long distances to come in and get the cans they want. And, you know, they can go back and share them with their friends. And then the majority of people are just coming in and buying a smaller amount. And it, it's, it gets spread out. It really does. I think that there's just a lot of a lot of hysteria about the the running out thing, and that's just not that's just not what's happening on a regular basis. Do you, I have a question? Do you guys cut allotments like further down the line? So it's like whatever, three hundred people in, they're going to get less. Only only under extreme circumstances. If we have a humongous line, and we know starting out that we're going to run out before the end of that line. Then we will occasionally do that. It's it's very very rare, but you know, and I a lot of people. This is the this is the other complaint. Oh, you cut allotments. I got here really early, and I I get it, but we didn't start selling beer to people to cater to the first ten people to walk in the door all the time. Like we're trying to get beer to everybody, and not everybody that comes to other half for the first time knows that they're going to miss out on getting beer if they show up at nine o'clock. I mean that's. I I would you know I mean I know that now because I run the company but I would have never imagined that and I still I don't think that I don't think that anybody else imagines that's going to be the case um, so if you're coming the first time and you get there and you've driven from I don't know PA or you just came from the Upper West Side like the last thing you want to find out is that you can't get any beer. Also, I think an interesting sort of facet to this discussion is the idea, like we were referring to it before, about like this barter economy that exists sort of inside and like with both within and like around the the main economy of 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 craft beer and, and can releases, which say that like in our own Instagram posts, there's a barter economy trading all of these cans before the people even have the cans, right? So if you have someone who they, they know that they're gonna get three, four packs of this beer and they trade, they trade all of it or they trade 75% of it for other half and Monkish and Hoofarden and the other breweries that are doing stuff like this. And then it, it turns out that they didn't get as much as they thought that they were going to get. They're now burning bridges with the people who they're trading with on the internet and like I've heard stories of people like, you know, you won't, you can only burn someone so many times before they're not going to trade with you anymore. And so I think that part of the reason why some people are end up being frustrated with allotment cuts or not being able to get beer is that they're not only letting themselves down; they're like letting the that barter economy. But down. shouldn't you trade after you have the right. beer? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, I get all I get all that, and there's like. That's like way too much thinking for our brewery. Like, like <laughs> seriously? Yeah, listen, it's, it's very simple. We make beer. We do everything we can to get everybody the beer. If you don't get the beer and we don't tell you how much beer we have, that's just the way it is. Why can't that just be? It's, it's as simple as that. Like, I, I, think, I think we all take for granted that some of the successes we've had with some of this. We just, we just wanted to make beer, man. Like, it just turned out this way. Like, this, is, this is a pretty organic thing. Like, I could, I could speak for Sam and I, and I could say, this is an extremely organic thing that happened to our breweries, and we just want to get people the beer. We, we focus on production and making the best beer to get you guys the beer. If we happen to not get everybody the beer, 
that's just the way it is. Like, I, I can't be involved. I'm, that's way too, too complicated for me. It's like a metric system. It's, so, it's kind of... Uh, uh, like, figure out, like, allotments <laughs> and trading. Like, we just make the beer and we sell the beer. It's, that's it. It's kind of it's <laughs> unbelievable because, because uh, you know, I don't think line management wasn't part of brewery's no. skill set five years ago. And I think that... that more and more, and this is, I think this, this speaks to where the industry is right now, and especially in a state like this that has really great laws. Um, small breweries, you know, under 10,000 barrels are, are looking for ways to move their beer direct to customer. Because um, those, those numbers are really, those are more difficult. Those are, when you're at that size, working with distributors is a little more difficult in terms of, you know, making money to grow your brand. And so I think a lot, of, a lot of breweries that are under that size are trying to get somewhere with their brand first and be able to move as much beer direct to customer as possible before they start looking at the option of moving more beer through a distributor. And that's, kind of, that's new, right? Like first you weren't able to do that before in a lot of places and the laws have changed to benefit, um, I don't know if I'd say benefit, I would just yeah, say it's, it's, it's helping, it's, it's more correcting, uh, an imbalance because it's uh, again it's really hard when you're small the cost of everything you do is more expensive the cost of your hops the cost of your malt everything is is higher in cost so you're you're producing beers that cost more to make and if you're selling them at a similar margin to a larger brewery you don't have that volume to make up that difference for you so you know this is great i think any brewery that's managing a line right now is so happy they're doing that, but again, it wasn't something that we were doing before because it's just the whole business has changed. Right, and it's, a, and it's a real thing. We know it's real because there's distributors lobbying in New York State to have a piece of some of that on-premise action of breweries. That's a real thing that's happening right now. So, so we, we know that us working hard to manage and to sell our beer direct to consumer, not only do we have control of the quality, but we also have control of the experience of our brand and our product. So it's a real thing. It's, a, it's not the easiest thing to manage, but it's out there. And I, I think it's important for breweries to, to recognize it and work hard to make sure people are happy with their brand. So let's move on from cans and talk about, um, although cans are definitely part of this, but kind of this Especially, well, I'm going to combine it with a uh, question from the audience. So advice for up-and-coming brewers without a brewery. If you're, if you're trying to plan on opening a brewery. So I'm going to say from our experience at Fifth Hammer, we've only been open for five months. Um, but I think everybody in this line has a slightly different experience in opening their tasting room or kind of um, has a slightly different business model and that none of, we could have, that eight years ago we, we couldn't have predicted any of our breweries uh, operating the way that they do. So let's talk about how the opportunities at New York State and that the, this growing beer consumer, I think that beer consumers are more educated nowadays, that a lot more, there's a much wider audience that are choosing to drink craft beer. How has that changed your business model from when you started? And how is that changing your, um, your possible plans or, or for, for, the, for the future? I, th I, th I think for me, I was relatively naive coming into the brewing industry. I had come from more of a consulting background. I wasn't necessarily in the trenches of making beer and selling beer or trading beer. I came more from the mechanical standpoint. So I was a bit naive. Uh, and I just really did what I wanted. You know, I, just, I just 
did, did everything I wanted to do with the brewery. Um, I didn't have really any market pressures. I didn't have really any influencer consumers that were really driving what I wanted to do. I just did what I wanted, and this is where we wound up. So I think there's a lot to be said for that. I think people, you know, it's a passion project, but as soon as you realize that it's a, it's a business, and you treat it like a business, um, and you use your passion to drive those business models, I think you can be very successful in this, in this industry. I'm going to throw this out there that it, we wouldn't be able to, uh, like Dan would not be able to be in the position he's in to kind of approach it. Like I'm just going to do whatever I want if it wasn't for all the breweries that came before us right. that could not do it that way. I mean, they really paved the way for us to do that. And, you know, while there wasn't a lot of breweries in New York City even five years ago, we still are, it's, it's, the, it's all the breweries in the rest of the state, what the New York State Brewers Guild has done to make it easier for breweries to do business in this state. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we, owe, we owe all those breweries a lot because they, they put up with less tolerable position, uh, you know, position than we were, than we were in. So, uh, I mean, I, I can just tell you right now, when we open, so we're the, we're the oldest brewery up here, which is crazy because we just, <laughs> we just turned four. Um, but you, when we opened, you were not allowed to sell for on-premise consumption as a brewery in New York State. So those of you that have come to other half throughout our history know that we had a crazy small tap room. That was not because we thought that nobody was going to come to us. I mean, I mean, we didn't know either way, but um, we just thought we were going to make a spot for people to come get beer to go, not have people come and drink. So we always had this tiny tap room. And I think everybody that's opening now, I mean, the future, the, the way that, every, like I said before, it's all direct... Direct customers, what's going to save breweries, um, and I think that's why everybody is trying their best to have tap rooms and places interface with the public. I think that uh, I mean for Interborough, for us, uh, we, there's no way we could exist anywhere. Well, maybe a handful of states, but definitely nowhere in the Northeast operating a, a brewery and a distillery in the same location. Um, the New York State laws that changed over the last five years have made, made New York one of the most uh, you know, advantageous states to produce alcoholic beverages in by far. I spent four years operating a brewery in New Jersey and, and there was nothing about that that was easy. Um, there, there, none of the laws there made it very, you know, you still can't, well now you can, but it, you know, you, it was way more difficult in New Jersey to sell beer to people. Uh, and you still couldn't op operate a brewery and a distillery in the same premises in, uh, in New Jersey. Um, and yes, uh, you know, Sam, I think Sam and Matt might have been one of the last breweries to open in New York City in, before, before the laws changed. changed. Yeah. Um, and the rest of us all learned really quickly once the laws did change that, you know, we're essentially opening taverns alongside production facilities. Um, and that the consumers in this decade have been, have learned or been trained to you know really want to enjoy and to enjoy and maybe you know possibly it's the brewers who are doing it and it's the people who came before us to some degree who taught consumers that going to a brewery and drinking the beer where it was made is actually really a fun cool thing to do and so we try, we do our best to make the experience as valuable as possible by providing information and and making the experience really um enjoyable 
but people like to be where the product is produced. And that is, you know, and, and we're lucky to be in a state where we're allowed to sell the product to you directly in the place where it's produced. Um, you know, we're constantly in terms of how to, how we're going to grow our brewery. We're constantly walking a line at this point between, well, are we going to increase production? Are we going to increase retail capacity? Are we going to, you know, it, and I don't think that, you know, breweries 10 years ago had these questions to ask, you know, breweries 10 years ago, it was, let's, you know, let's grow our footprint as much as possible. Let's become, regional let's become the next new belgium let's become the next terrapin let's become the next smutty nose and that was growth and that was what um success as a small brewery meant and i think that in 2018 it's a lot what success as a small brewery means is a lot different than it was you know even three or four years ago um and it's and it's a as a small business owner and as and also as a brewer who's constantly concerned with quality and you know, making the best possible product possible, possible, possible. I'll say it four more times. Um, <laughs> you, you know, it, it's, it, it, it makes owning the business and operating the business um, more than just, well, what's my favorite flavor of IPA or do I want to make a kettle sour this week? Um, it, you know, so it, 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 it's a more complicated terrain, I think, that people have to be able to negotiate. And so... I've used an analogy that about uh, or a metaphor of, of a restaurant. I think that it's becoming a much more complicated um, landscape and that, you know, restaurants aren't easy operations to open and a lot of restaurants fail. And um, I'm not, you know, so far we're all lucky enough to not see a lot of failure because, you know, part of Beer Week is being really happy for all of our friends that everybody's experiencing great success and that the consumers and the beer drinkers are all really having a good time and enjoying what we're doing. Um, but it's not, you know, it's by no means easy and it's by no means, you know, not, doesn't keep you awake at night. I mean, we've talked about things that keep you awake at night, but you know, that's definitely one of them. But again, we're, we're, we're very lucky to be where we're at. I mean, if you were to look, I I think that you're going to start seeing, well, we already are seeing, but there is some stress on this, on this industry and it's not, it's not our size brewery right now. It's not the breweries that are selling direct customer. It's the mid-sized craft breweries that are stretched really thin across many states that are going to start being under pressure. It's it's a really difficult model, especially with so many local breweries opening. I mean, if we have, what, 7,000 breweries in the U.S. right now, it's going to get harder. Being the youngest one up here, uh, brewery-wise. Youngest, youngest brewery, my friend. Brewery-wise, brewery-wise. Hi. We, uh, we, we were able to open after they've paid the wave and after the scene has set, but also our part of our love for beer is uh, absolutely the, the, the craftsmanship and making it and doing it, and we've been addicted to that for, for a long time. Um, but it's the people surrounding it, and uh, it paved the way for us to follow the passion of celebrating the people surrounding it and able to build a tap room that's large enough to host the kind of things that celebrate life and, and enjoyment of it. Uh, and even, but even with that, even planning ahead of time for that uh, or trying to make that a thing, it's, it was certainly, it's certainly been more uh, appreciated than we expected to given, given the times. And, and when is it going to change? I mean, it is going to get dip, more difficult, and, but we are in a city that... Uh, or in a state where the laws really allow for us to have started with that model, and we appreciate that. So, speaking from personal experience, how, but you know, operating a tasting room where the public comes in and spends time is a completely different part of the business than planning a, you know, planning a recipe, 
um, and executing that recipe. So how has that changed your outlook or your, your kind of business plan? <clears throat> have you had, you know, you have to hire tasting room managers. Hire people to know yeah, how to Yeah, hire do people to know what the hell they're doing. <laughs> no, yeah. it's, it's, it, if what you want to do is make beer, then make beer. And if what you want to do is run a tavern, then run a tavern. And if you want to open a place in New York City right now, then you should pair up. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, let's talk about this beer bef- that we poured. Um, so this is the LIC, and it's a collaboration between Innerborough and Fool's Gold called Hazy. That's how it goes. So how did you guys come about brewing this beer together? Me? It's your beer. <laughs> um, yeah, so we, we hooked up with Patrick from Fool's Gold. He kind of led the craziness of, of the beer and kind of what we were going to do. Uh, kind of set the direction for what he wanted for the beer as far as the profile goes. And then, you know, Jesse and I just came up with some cool ideas to fit into that. It was a tall order because Patrick is kind of nuts. Um, <laughs> so, it, yeah, so pretty much we just brought him to the brewery, fed him beers all day, and then told him the beer was going to be sick. And he had to buy, <laughs> he had to, and he had to buy the whole batch. <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, collaborations, I think, a lot of times are, 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 I mean, it's a lot of collaborations happening a lot of the time, and it's a fun way to, you know, be like, yo, what are you doing? He wants an IPA, all right? Well, what are you doing for most of your IPAs? Right, so Jesse's like, oh, man, you got to use a Zaka, you know? And, like, Uh, I had, like, a couple hundred pounds in the cold box I haven't, like, touched, you know? I was, like, terrified to use it. So, so Jesse's like, oh, dude, you got to just use a Zaka. So I was like, Patrick, what do you think? He's like, oh, you fuck, man. I'm good. I just smoke like a <laughs> So I'm like, oh, perfect. That's what we're doing. <laughs> I'm like, Patrick, you're buying the whole batch, right? He's like, yeah. So I'm like, anything, whatever you want to do. <laughs> no, it was fun. Um, we use some English malts in this beer that we usually don't use. Uh, kind of give it more of um, an amber, not quite amber, but more of a copper hue to the beer. Also built on the structure, some of the hops that we're using, some more of those maybe grassier tones, earthier tones you're getting from some of those hops. Um, I felt like some of that malt really built in to those hops. So yeah, and you know, all uh, joking aside, we had, we had a lot of fun making this beer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then Sam, but, we also, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, no, it's fine. And Sam, we just poured the Rake It Up, which is also a collaboration you did with Barrier. So let's talk a little bit about collaborations, because I know, Sam, that you do a lot. Jesse, you're doing, you know, everybody's doing more. So talk about that a little bit. Uh, so yeah, we always, uh, so far, um, you know, we're only four years old, but we do, uh, we do a collaboration every, pr- prior to every New York City Beer Week with Barrier. It's kind of become a tradition. Uh, and the initial one started out as a, uh, a combination of Hop Showers, one of our beers, and Money, one of uh, Barrier's beers, and we called it Make It Rain. And I, I kind of, I wanted to, I just thought it was amusing to, I know that for them, Money is a reference to a fish song, and I kind of thought it was funny to make them make a beer with us that was based on a, uh, the song, the name is based on a strip club anthem. Wait, do you uh, listen to fish? It's kind of, uh, the whole thing's like tongue-in-cheek for us, but... Um, do you, no, I do not listen okay. to fish. <laughs> is that like a Portland thing? Like strip club? <laughs> there are a lot of strip clubs in Portland, um, which is where I'm from. 
but I'm not personally not a big strip club, club guy, but I've kind of led them down this path with us where we keep doing all these all these beers that are that are based on strip club anthems. So the la- last year we did throw some Mo, which you probably know that one, which is basically the, the beer we done the previous year made into an imperial with mosaic added to it. That was the Mo part. And then this year we did rake it up. Um, so anyways, this one... <laughs> This one is uh, is Mosaic Citra, and a newer uh, hop called Denali, which is incredibly intense. It's pretty dank. A lot of pineapple. We use very little of it, um, but yeah, oats. Lots of oats. 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 Yes, brewers are now the. Oatly. I would say people that grow oats are probably surprised by the increase in the amount of oats being used by brewers over the last five years. Not just for breakfast. Yeah. Anyway. Some dude in Wyoming is like, "Oh shit!" Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think all shit. most of our suppliers. You guys want oats now? Have like a whole new warehouse just dedicated to oats. <laughs> Tune in next week for part two of New York City Beer Week's Brewers Panel. Find all our episodes on heritageradionetwork.org, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. Foment about it. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.